Just give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. As a filmmaker, positive psychology coach, author, professor, and change agent specializing in the field of happiness, Lisa Cybers Kamen is widely recognized as an expert in the field. On the show, she also focuses on military families and service personnel returning with PTSD, traumatic brain injury and other post-deployment civilian life reintegration issues. So, let's spend some time getting to the heart of the matter on Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now, here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Good afternoon and good evening wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, where we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, 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 ladies and gentlemen. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. Do me a favor. If you like what you hear, follow me on Twitter at Lisa Kamen or follow our show at HH Talk Radio on Twitter or you can tweet at us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness. You know, it's February and we are continuing our theme of Love is in the Air. And really, this whole Valentine's Day thing is a little bit overrated because love is what it is all about. And in the spirit of this, we are talking today about relationships, relationships with our partners, with our parents, with our children, with our tribe, with ourselves and each other. Linda Carroll is the author of Love Cycles, Her Mother's Daughter, and Remember Who You Are. She's a couples therapist for more than 30 years. She's certified in transpersonal psychology and imago therapy, as well as a master teacher in pairs therapy. She currently lives in Corvallis, Oregon, and offers workshops across the country and is a frequent speaker at Rancho La Puerta in Tecate, Mexico. Welcome, Linda. Thanks for being with us. Hi. I'm so glad to be with you. What a great introduction, wasn't it, about love? I mean, what is it about except learning how to love? That's what I think, at least. Me too. I think that that's everything. And once we figure that out, and mostly I think it starts with ourselves and that reflection in the mirror, and then we can go global with it. Yes, 
but it's learning how to because it's it's you know when I we we fall in love it takes no energy or work or intelligence or self knowledge we just fall I did it at eleven you don't have to have any skill to be able to do it but how to keep loving really is the challenge for all of us is learning how to love and I think that's why Rilke said it takes a lifetime to learn how to do it because it's a very slippery slope at times. And yet we're so lucky to live in this time where we really have roadmaps that can help us get back off the slippery slope onto the path of loving. And those roadmaps are, are what you share in your program and what I've been studying all my life because I wanted it to be easier. And I, and I found that without a roadmap, it wasn't easy at all. It's still not easy, but at least I know something about it. You know a lot about it. And your latest book, Love Cycles, goes in depth about this cycle of falling, uh, building, maintaining, and re-experiencing love. What does the phrase love cycle mean to you? It means that, well, I'll tell you, I was, I was on a plane and I read, the, uh, going to Rancho La Puerta to talk about love many years ago. And there was a, like a Dear Abby column. The person said, I have this fabulous partner. He's a great father. He's so wonderful to me, but I'm not in love with him anymore. What should I do? And the person who was responding said, well, you should get a lawyer and leave. And I was so distressed by that. That I, and I started to talk, and sometimes that's just what happens to me. I was giving my talk at, at the ranch, and um, it just kind of came out of me. And I said, you know, love is a feeling, and relationships are a skill set. And the feeling of love cycles over and over again, sometimes throughout a day. We don't always, like a frozen photograph, we don't always stand looking at our beloved with our heart open. Sometimes we can't get in touch with the feeling. And, you know, long relationships have some cold winters. Everything goes in cycles. Our, our, the seasons, our careers, our, the development of, of who we are and what we care about. Cycles are a part of our world, the waves of the ocean. And so why wouldn't relationships also go in cycles? And yet we're so geared to that first cycle, the merge, or that cycle of despair, which I call the, the, um, the, the third cycle of relationship, what, what ha- happens is that we think that those cycles are the whole thing. We are enchanted, and we think that's love, and we are disenchanted, and we think that love is over. But they're all part of one cycle, and I think coming to understand that has certainly helped myself and many readers to see what is normal in the journey of love. I think you share something extremely important, and uh, many of our listeners, and myself included, have been in a very, very long-term committed relationship. And I noticed that while my love of my partner doesn't really dampen, it definitely, like the love lights, wax and wane. And I think it's really important to understand that that's common and normal. It's common and normal. It doesn't mean something's wrong. And it also doesn't mean to shut down our loving behavior. Um, that, That when we're, you know, what couples spend a lot of time in reaction to each other. So one is in a place where they're more contracted. 
That's another cycle is expansion and, and contraction. And two people aren't going to be expanded with their hearts open, you know, gazing at each other day after day. We have life comes in, stress comes in. We have all my husband has the flu right now, and he's sort of a bear, really. He's not much fun to be around. And, and I want to say my heart's full of, of, of complete compassion, but I'm kind of annoyed. He's grumbling around the house, you know, pushing away, looking for things. But I can, I'm continuing to be kind to him because I know he's not feeling well. And that we have, that's, part of, that's part of cycles of life, isn't it? You know, some days we just don't feel well. Some days we get the flu. And I think that we have this idea that, so if you were to say, am I madly in love with him today? No, not at all. He's annoying me. <laughs> but that has nothing to do with what my heart is, the depth of me, experiences for him. Um, and so, you know, this, if I'm looking, if I'm thinking about those love songs and the feelings of enchantment, that's, I'm going to say, well, I, I'm not in love. So it's a complicated phrase. Even the phrase of being in love is complicated and makes lots of trouble because we can't be in a state at every moment. That's like saying being in enlightenment. Yes. You need those other states of being unenlightened or being goofy and and unconscious to really highlight when we do come to those enlightened moments as the same with those loving moments. You know, that I, 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 I don't think we can be there all the time, but yet maybe there's another way of looking at this concept of love or this action of love. There is the romantic love that we think about when we think about our partners um, and people we're in relationship with. But when we talk about the deeper soul of love, you know, that unconditional positive regard for another person simply because they're alive. Right. Um, and, and I, th- you know, I think, and I don't feel that all the time either, you know, but I'll tell you something. Every day for 30 years, my husband has made me a latte. I mean, just about just about every single day, you know, he makes that latte when we're our hearts open to each other. He makes it if we're angry at each other. He makes it if we're just in different worlds and aren't paying attention to each other. That latte comes, and I think that there's a truth in that that is a bigger truth, which is that love is an action. It's a skill set. It doesn't depend on what you feel. It depends on what your commitment is. And I think of it kind of like playing the violin. Not everyone who plays the violin, I probably nobody who plays the violin, gets up and practices every day with a song in their heart. You know, there's days they just couldn't be bothered. But you, it's like, or, or going to the gym, you just do the action. And what happens is that those valleys, you come out of them and you've got more skill. If you just wait till you feel like playing the violin, there's not going to be any great violinists around. And I think that's true with a loving relationship. We act loving, and I'm not talking about being phony, but we, have, we, we do loving behavior and kind behavior as a practice, even when the feelings aren't there, because we have the belief in it. And that's what my book is about. That's what my teaching is about. And I really believe it, because it's worked for me. You know, I think what you just said really hits the nail on the head, that it is really a, it is a practice. It is about, you know, exercising those muscles of uh, love, empathy, compassion, understanding, patience, um, the, tol- the, the tolerance for um, life when it is not so perfect and it's not so romantic and the sirens are not singing, you know? <laughs> yes. That's also yes. life. That's right. 
That's right. Um, so that's the practice. Um, I, so that's, yes, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. I cut you off. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> that's okay. Um, I didn't even know you did. I think, so love is a practice. It's a practice that we do, and I'm not talking about squishy, fake love. I'm talking about the kindness of it, you know, that we do, and we forgive ourselves when we don't, because we're not going to do that all the time either. But there, it really helps to know stages and to understand the cycles of love. The cycles of love involve not only what we are feeling, but it also involves our sexuality. You know, sex goes through cycles too. I know we're not going to talk about that, but we think that somehow the that culturally, that if we're not having incredibly, you know, hot, wonderful, amazing, over-the-moon sex like we did in the third month, that there's something wrong with the relationship. And again, that's a practice. You can bring that back, but it doesn't come naturally. It's not just falling into. It requires something from us to make happen. You know, I really agree with you on this, especially when you've been together with somebody for a long period of time. We're going to go to a break in a second, but I will just make one observation that that latte every day for 30 years, that's foreplay in my book. You know, like that your husband, got right. he's got a big scorecard. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's right. It's a love song and it's foreplay. That's that's right. Because what it does is it builds goodwill and trust. And, you know, everybody has trouble. Everybody argues. Everybody, every, we're all impossible at some level. And, and the thing that happens is that the goodwill is what brings us back into heart contact with each other again and again. And in spite of all of the things that are not perfect and don't work. We are going to jump to a pause. You know, hopefully we'll have a little love music that's waiting for us here in the break. (laughs) And to learn more about Linda Carroll and her latest book, Love Cycles, please visit www.lovecycles.org. On Facebook, the handle is Love Cycles. And Linda's Twitter handle is Love Cycles Linda. Here come those tunes and we'll be right back. Happiness is an inside job. Wear the message on t-shirts, baseball caps, sterling silver designer jewelry, and more. Please visit our online boutique at www.harvestinghappiness.com. Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress came and has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. Available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Love is the open door. Love. 
welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download this podcast and share it with your tribe. Why? Because it's free, it's kind, it's legal, it's available 24-7, and we are talking about love and relationships today. And in the studio, I have Linda Carroll. She is the author of Love Cycles, her latest book, as well as others, including her mother's daughter, and Remember Who You Are. Linda, prior to the break, we were talking about um, your husband, who makes you these lattes uh, every day for 30 years, and I think that's really delicious and really keeps that sense of romance alive. And in my book, it's, it is foreplay, as I mentioned. But there's something that we all love about the early phases of our romances, the infatuation stays, uh, stages when we're actually a little loopy. What is that? Well, it's dopamine. You know, you know, Aphrodite, the goddess of love, had a son named Cupid. All of our stories that go back so far talk about love potion hit with the magic arrow. What we know now is that that magic arrow actually does have a potion in it. It is measurable. It's measurable in laboratories. It's measurable on PET scans. The brains of people who fall in love are different in that romantic stage than people who are not. And in the long-term love, they're not different. But in the beginning, we have all of that dopamine, oxytocin, a, a, a substance called norepinephrine. And what happens is, and they all reduce serotonin, which makes us have kind of a similar reaction of um, obsessive-compulsive disorder. When you don't have enough serotonin, you have <laughs> obsessive-compulsive disorder. And isn't that true? Who hasn't called somebody and hung up when they heard their voice or driven by someone's house and felt this hit? And we want to be under that spell, just like an history story after opera after poem talks about the spell of love that there is such an incredible feeling it's the best diet there is we don't need to eat or sleep and we really feel like we've cracked a code now here's what i think i think that there is there are two things about that one is it is not a sign that we should be with that person in fact for some of us when we feel that feeling we should run so fast the other way because we're programmed to fall in love with people that are not going to be good for us. That's part one, is that it's a sign that something's happening. It may be a sign to have a great time, to enjoy this person. It's not a sign to run off with them and start a life. We need a lot more information about who they are before we do that. But it's a sign that something has happened. There's something here to pay attention to, and it's very powerful the second thing about it that I think is really, really important about um, that that state of love is it shows us the possibility, and I and it shows us not only the possibility of the other person because there's something about the chemistry that makes us see the best of that person, and by the way, it also causes us to ignore the worst of them. So it is not necessarily what we see is, is the best, but we may not pay attention to the fact that they've had 18 lovers before us who they've dumped unexpectedly. Um, the other, but the other thing that it does is it causes us to be our best. I'm never more generous or accepting or less critical than when I'm under the spell of, the, of that romantic drug. And so there's something in that to pay attention to, which is how can I get back 
some of those feelings. And one of the things I do when I work, I work with couples. I'm a coach. I work all over the United States with couples, and I have a practice. And I have, we go, we really take apart those early times. What did they do? We laughed together. We were, gave each other spontaneous presents. We brought lattes. We forgave. We, you know, we said it doesn't really matter where you want to eat tonight. And I say, okay, can you start to act that way, even though you don't feel the feelings? What would happen if you were spun, if you just allowed yourself to imagine behaving in that way? What would happen? And you know what happens. There was a great, uh, a great story in Modern Love a couple of weeks ago in the Times about the experiments about how when we are interested in the other person, when we are caring towards them, People fall in love with each other. Those have been experiments that have done at universities everywhere. Put people in a room eye to eye and have them share and, and disclose in a deep way and listen. They fall in love. And what did we do in the beginning? We listened. We thought the other person was so fabulous and fascinating. We wanted to hear their story. We didn't roll our eyes and say, oh, not that story again. But we said, okay, tell me about your day. I really want to hear. Can we mirror some of those behaviors? If we can do that, some of those feelings can come back again. And then that leads to a whole new kind of relationship. So that there is really, so that's, that's I, I could talk about the falling in love part forever, but those are two things I think. You know, simulate the behavior and don't confuse the feelings for um, relationship compatibility. You got to know your own history and what's going to what's going to get your attention. And sometimes it's the biggest narcissist in the room, so that is not necessarily a sign to go towards. Oh boy, yes, and we've got a show coming up about narcissism and and psychopathology, so we're going to leave that for another episode. But I do think what you said is really important, and I know that. Um, my guy, who I've been with for many, many years, and you know, you get kind of into a routine, and I wouldn't say a rut, but you get into the routine and the flow of seeing that person in through one colored lens. And I, I, I find that when I see him out in the world talking about what he loves, he's an architect, and seeing him engage with his clients, I end up having moments of falling in love with him again because yes. I see him differently. He's not yes, just my guy. Yes. That's so good. Yes, that's right. That when we see our partner being competent, that there's something about that that's very exciting, isn't it? I, I think that that is absolutely true. And we see them in a different way instead of the person that comes home and puts their bag down in the same way and sighs. It's like, oh, not that sigh again. And we get locked in a story about who the other person is. And one of the things I was saying to, I had, a, I taught a class this weekend in Portland, a Love Cycles class, and something that really got people's attention is I said, never, ever, ever think that you know the person, really know them. We are changing all the time in ourselves, and it's one of the most dangerous things that we can do is to think, boy, I know everything about this person. And then we see them in their office and they're with their clients building a, something or, um, or doing their work, and we think, I, no, this is a different person. It's a trap to think that we really know the person. We don't. And that can keep it exciting if we let ourselves keep discovering who they are. Agreed. What is the most important question to ask a person to whom you think you might want to commit yourself? There's, it, there's no question to ask them. There is not a, because everybody will answer the right, the right way. The most important thing to, to notice 
is how they treat other people, past lovers, their family. How do they talk about things that haven't gone well? Excuse me. You know, we all have times in relationships that have faltered, that have fallen apart. How do they talk about disappointments? Do they take responsibility for it? Do they say it's somebody else's fault? It's not a question. You know, how do they how do they talk about their past partners? And how do they look at what has not worked in their life? Do they say, you know, I wasn't fair or I was, you know, I was pretty entitled? You know, that's somebody that I would trust more than somebody who was able to describe everything that happened in their life that didn't go the way they wanted as somebody else's fault. So asking, it's not the question, it's the observation. If you're brave enough to really look at how they do life, how is their integrity outside of you? What are their skills for getting over things? Do they hold on? Because if you're going to be in a long-term relationship, you're going to have to get over a lot. You know, you, people hurt each other's feelings all the time, annoy each other. And, and that part of the, the skill of, of being in a long-term relationship is getting over it and being able to laugh and say, boy, we got lost in that one, didn't we? Let's go to dinner. And if they can't do it away from you, they're not going to, they may be able to do everything perfect under the spell of love. But when that chemical wears off, because it doesn't last forever, three years with diminishing returns. So every time you fall in love, it lasts less and less time. If they can't do it without the spell of love, then you've had it. So not a question, but pay attention. Pay attention to who they are away from you. I love what you've just shared. You um, outlined six essential skills in love cycles, and I would love for you to chat a little bit about those skills and pique our listeners' interest so they run out and buy the book. Yay. Okay, I will. And the book just got sold into Korea, Latin America, and Turkey. I'm so thrilled it's going to be all those places. Um, Six essential skills. The first is to know you're part of the trouble. When we look out, what we see is the other person and what they're doing. We have to know where we're triggered, how we're contributing, how to really listen without barriers. That means listen, not so that I can figure out how to jump in and get my point made, but to listen with your point of view. Another skill is to nourish the relationship, even when you don't feel like it, like that cup of coffee. And the last one I'm going to say, because we're almost out of time, is keep your own tank filled. We've got two jobs in love. One is to care for ourselves and to keep our tank, our own tank filled. And the other is to pay attention to our partner and to keep the relationship tank filled. But they balance on each other. The more I have of me, the more I can bring to you. And the less of me that I have, the less I can bring to you. So those are four of them. You can get the book and find the other two. <laughs> oh, I love that. That is that is a great teaser, Linda. I wanted to just uh, tap in here for a second about intimacy, that we have one view of intimacy that is um, sort of the um, textbook view, that intimacy is all about being enmeshed and completely uh, open and vulnerable. But intimacy, as I understand it, how you're presenting it in Love Cycles, is also about the ability to be separate. Yes. That's right. We can be, because we have these two urges that we come with. One is for connection, one is for solitude. And there's always, there's always some attention between the two. And with couples, excuse me, 
there's also attention because one person may want connection, the other solitude. So we're working with these two instincts all the time. And intimacy has to do with coming to you with a full heart. When we fall in love, we feel like we've met our other half. And love's journey is really about the often painful and I'm so sorry, the brave discovery that we we don't have another half, that we are it, that it all starts and ends with us. And the wholehearted love that I talk about that I get to as the final cycle is knowing that I'm whole. I'm whole already. I've got to make myself whole, but I'm whole, and you're whole, and the place where we come together, that is a, almost like a third person, a third being, the us, the I, thou, the, the us. But you're already whole, and I'm already whole. So in order for that whole, it's not something that gets set. To keep that wholeness alive, I have to fill it from within. You can't fill it for me. And the more I fill it from within, the more I have to bring to our I, thou, and the more you fill it with from within. And it's so seductive to want to hang out in that wonderful, juicy love juice and not do anything else, but it doesn't last, and it lasts even less if we become so clingy to each other, we stop having selves. And Linda, we are out of time. I want to thank you for sharing your heart, your love, your love cycles with us. To learn more about Linda Carroll and her coaching, her um, workshops, and, and work that she's doing really all over the world, please visit lovecycles.org. On Facebook, the handle is Love Cycles, and on Twitter, Love Cycles Linda. Here come those tunes. We'll be right back. Thank you, Linda. Thank you. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress came and has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. Available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download this podcast. Why? Because it's free, it's kind, it's legal, and we are talking about probably 
the most wonderful, intoxicating, joy-making feelings that there are on the planet, and that is love. And with me now in the studio is Dr. Helen E. Fisher. She is a biological anthropologist and the chief scientific advisor at Match.com. She's a research professor in the Department of Anthropology at Rutgers University. She has written five books on the evolution of the future of human sexuality, monogamy, adultery, and divorce, as well as gender differences in the brain and the chemistry of romantic love. And most recently, she is researching human personality types and why we fall in love with this one versus that one. Hi, Helen. Thanks for joining us. I'm delighted to be with you, Lisa. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. I am so excited. I don't know where to start. But let's start (laughs) about why love is like a drug in the brain. You know, why does the brain light up with love Mm -hmm. like when it's on cocaine? Great. Well, first of all, let me just say what kind of love we're talking about. I think we've evolved three distinctly different brain systems for mating and reproduction. One is the sex drive. Second one is feelings of intense romantic love. And the third is feelings of deep attachment. And I think what you're talking about is romantic love, that elation, giddiness, euphoria, focus, energy, motivation to win this person. And uh, um, this is the brain system that I and my colleagues have been studying for many years now. And we've put actually over 100 people into a brain scanner. But the first group of people we put into the brain scanner were people who had just fallen happily and madly in love. And indeed, we found activity in the entire um, pathways of the dopamine system. And many of this, these pathways are the same pathways that get um, um, activated when you take cocaine. In fact, um, we, we, I was really looking, I, I've always thought that romantic love was an addiction, a perfectly wonderful addiction when it's going well and a perfectly horrible addiction when it's going poorly. And indeed, in all of our brain scanning experiments, we've found activity in certain brain regions that become active in all of the addictions, particularly cocaine. So it is like cocaine in that you get that elation, the energy, the focus, the motivation. It's not like cocaine in that the following morning you wake up and you're no longer high on the cocaine. And when you're madly in love, it can last for months or years. And what is that madly in love stage in terms of how long does it last? You mentioned from months to years. Can it last really for years? Well, we wondered whether it could or couldn't and uh, because Americans think that it uh, it doesn't last. It's only a few months. And um, I do a national study with uh, Match.com. We don't poll the Match members. We poll the American population, so it's uh, based on the U.S. Census. And I asked that very, very question. And a large number of people said that it lasted for them between two and five years. And then um, we, uh, my brain scanning partners and I, put uh, uh, people in their 50s and 60s who were married an average of 21 years, and we put them in the brain scanner, and they all maintained that they were madly in love, still ma- not just loving, but madly in love with their long-term mar- married uh, partner. And sure enough, we found activities in the same dopamine system. What was the difference between those people who had just fallen happily in love and those who are still in love 
very long term was that when you're when you've just fallen happily in love we also find activity in a brain region linked with anxiety you know when you're when you've just fallen in love you're anxious i mean what did i say that for am i too fat how come he didn't do this i should have worn that you're, you're anxious but when you're married to somebody and you've had children that anxiety goes away and what is what is what what it replaces itself with is um feelings of calm and emotional security, and actually pain relief. Uh, brain regions linked with pain relief and calm uh, become active instead. So in long-term love, you still you still want to make love to the person. You still want to have them to come home for dinner. You still laugh together. You still want to go on vacations together. You still have that real focus and energy for that person. But that early stage intense obsession seems to be gone. Um, interesting. Now, going back to the, the, the long-term in-loveness, let's say, you know, many of us are in long-term relationships, myself included, and I observe in myself and with my partner that we can go for a period of time where we're perfectly well-mated and happy, but then suddenly there'll be, there will be a spike once again in that in-loveness. What, what is the correlation of that? What, what trips that? What makes that happen? Lisa, that is a perfect explanation. I have not really heard anybody say that the way you just said it. I try to say it to people, but what's going on is when you're, uh, so it's, it's an astute observation, and um, what, is, what, what I think is going on in the brain, and, and we don't know, but as an educated guest, that attachment system goes on even when you hate the person. You can feel deeply attached to the person, even though they're annoyed they didn't pick up their socks, they forgot the call, they were too late for dinner, et cetera, et cetera. You still feel the attachment to them. So that daily sense of calm and, 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 and emotional security and fondness for the person simply remains long-term if you pick the right person. And then there are these periods, these spikes of intense romantic love. Suddenly they look so handsome as they're walking down the street or so pretty or they say something so funny. What's probably going on in the brain is there's a spike in the dopamine system that uh, the attachment system linked with oxytocin and vasopressin in, in people continues to go on, but at these moments there's a spike in the dopamine system and you get that rush again, that early stage feeling of intense romantic love. I think this is why people like vacations so much, because on a vacation, you're constantly doing novel things, and novelty drives up the dopamine system in the brain and can give you, once again, those old-time, that old-time rush, really, of intense romantic love. So it sounds like you're in a good partnership. Uh, well, I think so. You know, and I thought here it was, I thought it was perimenopause. You know, I thought it was all oh. me and the hormones going wacky. But this, this is a perfect explanation. It does make sense. Yeah, well, the other thing is, in a, I don't know what percentage of women, but quite a high percent, maybe as much as 30% of women have a higher sex drive um, after menopause because as estrogen levels really plummet, testosterone levels go down too, but they don't go down anywhere near as much. And so the ratio between estrogen and testosterone begins to change um, with menopause. And after menopause, a certain number of women actually have a higher sex drive. Uh, uh, because of that changing ratio of testosterone to estrogen. You know, middle-aged women also, um, they become more assertive. Uh, uh, they begin to put more weight on around the waist the way men do. They show many signs of testosterone. And one of the perks <laughs> could be a higher sex drive to go along with your feelings of intense romantic love and feelings of deep attachment. 
I say amen to all of that, except the belly fat. (laughs) That is really annoying, but that's another conversation. (laughs) Let's talk about the difference between men and women and, and what you've observed on these brain scans, because men, I think, get a bad rap, don't they? They get a really bad rap. I well, at least there's two of us on this planet who are trying to say that. I, I don't know why people don't listen to this. They're convinced, convinced that women are more romantic than than men are. We put um, a lot of men into the brain scanner, and other people have too, uh, in different experiments, and we did not find any difference at all in those basic brain systems that are linked with feelings of romantic love. Uh, and in fact, when I do my national studies with Match.com, the Singles in America study, I ask men and women a lot of questions. And as it turns out, men uh, are much more likely to fall in love at first sight uh, because they're so um, visual. Um, uh, men uh, fall in love more often uh, than women do during the course of their lives. Uh, when a man does fall in love, he is quicker to want to introduce his new partner to friends and family. He he wants to move in together uh, sooner. Uh, men tend to have more intimate conversations with their wives than women do with their husbands because women have their intimate conversations with their girlfriends. And men are two and a half times more likely to kill themselves when a relationship is over. So uh, men are just as romantic as women. In fact, I think they're a little bit more romantic. Women are I would the picky agree. six. They've had to be the picky six for mil- millions of years. You know, women have nine months of pregnancy. It's a, it's dangerous to give birth in many cultures, even now. And women spend more of their time in every culture in the world raising children under the age of four. So they've got a larger um, uh, 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 parenting load in the very beginning of a relationship uh, uh, of a of a of a of a parental partnership and. Uh, and they're going to be a little pickier. Men are, the, men are more romantic. I want to just uh, bring up a study that came across my desk this morning, in fact. It um, was done at Harvard. It's called the Harvard Grant Study. It began um, in 1938 through 1940. So it's the longest longitudinal longitudinal study that it has been done it is only with men um a harvard psychologist george valiant ran the study from 1972 through 2004 and he wrote a book on what what it reported and it basically reported the foundations for happiness uh, optimal well-being um and what these men went through through the course of their lives many of them were alive well into their 90s and um it comes to the end of the day that love, having good love, is what was the fuel for these men in the study. Yeah, I, I'm not at all surprised. Uh, um, you know, um, a, a good relationship, uh, you know, constant sex, uh, regular sex with your partner is very good for you, not just for um, your relationship together, but uh it's good for cortisol levels. It's good for your skin. It's good for your eyes. It's good for your heart. It's good for your blood pressure. It's good for your heart, et cetera. So, you know, if you're in a good relationship, you're going to most likely be having regular sex with the person. Also, if you're in a good relationship, somebody's going to be saying nice things to you all the time. And we've found that when you hear nice things, actually cortisol goes down, the immune system is boosted, 
um, and, and you, it boosts your optimism and your energy. So bottom line is uh, a good relationship. And, of course, sleeping in somebody's arms is going to trigger the oxytocin system, uh, uh, which calms you, soothes you, and is good for your health. Also, in a good relationship, women tend to sort of be the um, you know, the people who are running the relationship, and they often encourage men to get to the doctor sooner, uh, to pay attention to putting warm clothes on in the winter, uh, to taking care of them when they're sick, etc. So a good relationship. We were built to form pair bonds. For millions of years, we were built to form a pair bond to rear our children. Uh, 97% of mammals do not pair up to rear their young. People do. It's a hallmark of the human animal. And, of course, along with it has come all kinds of, of goodies, all kinds of good um, physiological and emotional and psychological perquisites of staying and finding and staying in a good relationship. We are going to go to a break. We are going to take our love to the tunes. And when we return, we're going to carry on the conversation with Dr. Helen Fisher. To learn more, please visit HelenFisher.com. On Facebook, she is at Helen Fisher PhD, and there is a hyphen between each word. And on Twitter, at Dr. Helen Fisher. Here come those tunes. We'll be right back. like Lisa's take on happiness, well-being, and human flourishing? Join us this spring as Harvesting Happiness launches online classroom programming where Lisa Cypress-Kamen will offer her workshop series across the globe and from the comfort of wherever you are. Visit HarvestingHappiness.com for more details. Be a part of the grateful good. Grateful Nation brings together patients, families, friends, and staff of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center to support the quality care and groundbreaking research at the Medical Center. Through new and traditional media, members of Grateful Nation share experiences, thank our caregivers and researchers, participate in sweepstakes, and gather to sponsor and host events and much more. Being grateful inspires others to be grateful as well. Isn't it time we jumpstart some perpetual gratitude? Visit Grateful Nation online to find out more at www.gratefulnation.org. Have a grateful day. Love is in the air, in the whisper of the tree. Love is in the air. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. We are continuing the conversation with Dr. Helen E. Fisher. She is the Chief Scientific Advisor at Match.com. She is a biological anthropologist and researcher who has written many, many books on human sexuality, monogamy, adultery, divorce, romantic love, on and on and on. Helen, prior to the break, we were talking about the differences between the genders um, in love. Let's talk a little bit about the opposite side of love love, which would perhaps be breakups and infidelity. Right. 
Well, I've certainly looked at both of them. Um, um, breakups are, are real tragedy. I, I, I and my colleagues have now put um, 15 people who have just been dumped into a brain scanner, and the brain regions that are active when you've been dumped, it's amazing people can cope because what happens, the brain region linked with intense romantic love becomes active. You still are madly in love with it. In fact, you're even more in love with them because when you can't get what you want, that dopamine system just tries harder. So you're madly in love with this person. Brain regions linked with feelings of deep attachment uh, become activated uh, and remain activated when you've been rejected in love. Three brain regions linked with uh, craving and um, addiction become activated and a brain region linked with physical pain and the distress that goes along with physical pain. So I'm not surprised that some people go over the edge and they stalk or they slip into clinical depression and some people even kill themselves or kill somebody else. It's a real brain storm when you've been rejected in love. The only thing that we really found is is uh, two 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 positive things. Is one part of the brain becomes active um, that is associated with trying to figure out what went wrong, assessing your gains and your losses. The brain is really ready to try and figure out. It's predisposed really to try and figure out what went wrong. And also, we found an activity in the brain region linked with attachment. And the farther you get away from that moment that you got dumped, the less activity there is in this brain region linked with attachment. So we really have proven that time heals. But you've got to get through those early stages. And boy, it's hard to do. Wow. That's, I mean, it just, just your description of it sounds painful. And my own experience in working with clients, I do hear time after time when you ask somebody why they went out from uh, sobriety, you know, why they started using again their substance, they will usually, usually say it's because of a breakup. Oh, isn't that interesting? And what they may be doing is, well, they're doing psychological things like trying to calm themselves and and uh, try and replace this, what they've lost. But in terms of the brain, they may well be trying to stimulate the same brain system that was stimulated by uh, the person who, who abandoned them. I don't know. Nobody really knows. But there's no question about it that we've proven that when you have been rejected in love, major brain regions linked with profound addiction, um, all of the addictions, uh, not only substance addictions like heroin and cocaine and amphetamines and and um, alcohol and cigarettes, but also the behavioral addictions, food addictions, uh, um, gambling addiction, and sex addiction, uh, they are all activated by this basic brain uh, circuit. And this same brain circuit becomes activated when you become rejected in love. As a matter of fact, I think that romantic love is what I would call a natural addiction, that it evolved millions of years ago uh, for various uh, evolutionary reasons, and that all of these modern addictions are just hijacking this ancient system for wanting. Mm. Uh, I want to talk for a moment about cheating. Is it true that cheaters never change? Cheaters never quit. I think cheaters um, can grow up. I think, uh, um, uh, I mean, some people are, are are more predisposed to cheating. We know some of the genes that are that are linked with um, uh, stability in a, in a pair bond, and that can that can lead to instability in a pair bond. We know some of the brain uh, uh, circuits that. Uh, I mean, for example, these three brain systems 
for the sex drive, romantic love, and feelings of attachment, they're not always well-connected. I mean, you can lie in bed and feel deep attachment for one person, and then the brain can swing into feelings of wild romantic love for somebody else or swing into feelings of the sex drive for somebody that they barely know. So there's a committee meeting that's constantly going on in the head, and and you can swing from one feeling to another. That doesn't lead to great stability. So um, mankind has, of course, evolved all kinds of uh, 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 social rules for uh, for uh, to, to stop uh, people from cheating, and some people follow them, and some people don't. But we do know some of the some of some of the reasons that some people are predisposed to this. But you know what? If you're giving up drinking, you can say no to alcohol. You can be predisposed to alcoholism and give up drinking. You can be predisposed to eating too much and just stop the the overindulgence of food. And in the same way, uh, you can be predisposed to uh, to some um, you know some form of of adultery and 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 choose not to do it. So it certainly is uh, possible to not do it. And we know so much more about the brain from the standpoint of being able to change it from neuroplasticity, from a plastic point of view. We can exactly right. change ourselves. Right. It, yeah, absolutely. Question. And, I, and, and back to your original question I, that I, um, I forgot to answer, um, I, I do think that, that people who are chronic cheaters um, can stop cheating. And I think that happens when they finally meet somebody who thrills them so much, and they have so much to lose and so much to gain, and so they so adore this person that they just choose not to do it. They may have grown out of it. They may have, you know, uh, it may have been something when they were young, um, or they were very faithful when they were young, and suddenly they're middle-aged and their partner has died or deserted them. And they, can, I think, people can have periods of, 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 of cheating, and then find the right situation for themselves so that they so that it just doesn't make any sense to them um and and one final question because we are actually winding down uh, with time here uh, the, i want to talk about the state of love for the future because there's there's so much that has um evolved over over the years and uh, you talked about this in in a TED talk that you did several years back about the use of antidepressants and how they actually can suppress not only the sex drive but our ability to perform to climax to um to want to engage even with others how does this affect the long term uh role of love in our lives Right. I, I, I am very, thanks for asking this, Lisa. It's, it's very important to me. You know, um, SSRIs, uh, very antidepressants that drive up the, the uh, serotonin system. The older ones are Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft. The newer ones are, uh, have some norepinephrine in them, but they drive up the serotonin system. And as you drive up the serotonin system, you are blunting or jeopardizing the dopamine system. And the dopamine system is linked with feelings of romantic love. And I get an email once a week from somebody who says, my wife we were, and I were very happily wedded, and they put her on one of these SSRIs maybe six months ago, and she's come to me now and says, I don't feel anything for you. I want a divorce. So we're seeing more and more of that. I just want to see if I can end with something on happiness. Um, you know, we have stumbled on what goes on in the brain when you are happily in love. Psychologists will add all kinds of psychological things, ecological things, etc. but this is what goes on in the brain. 
and it's just trying to supplement what people know. Three brain regions become active when you are in a long-term, happy relationship. One of them is linked with empathy, having empathy for your partner. The second is controlling your own emotions. And the third is something that we call positive illusions, the simple ability to, but not easy always, the simple ability to overlook what you don't like about this person and focus on what you do. So if I had to give one thing to say to various people, try and get off those SSRIs, try and get off antidepressants unless you really need them, and go do novel things together that drives up the dopamine system in the brain. Get lots of hugs and kisses that drives up the oxytocin system, makes you feel feelings of attachment. Have good sex with that person and, and, and do, practice some positive illusions. Try to overlook what you don't like and focus on what you do. Oh, I love that positive illusions. That's that is yeah. a that is great, and and really it, it it brings to mind this concept that Carl Rogers made very popular in this. I think it was the '60s, the early '60s or late '50s of unconditional positive regard, loving that person, you know, accepting that person for who she, he or she is simply because you care. Right. It can it can even be simpler than that. You know, I, I went for many years with a guy who was very slow. He walked slowly, he talked slowly, he thought slowly, he did everything slowly. Drove me crazy. But I would say to myself, you know, Helen, he he's walking slowly right now, but when we go into a museum, he looks very carefully at those paintings. He sees all kinds of things that I wouldn't have seen. When we go to the theater, he sees all the nuances of what this person said and that person said, and I, I, I can overlook the slowness because I get from that slowness all these beautiful extras. So you've got to find a way into really believing <laughs> that you love the things that are good about the person and that they overshadow what, what, what annoys you. One last question. Love around the world, are there differences or is love just simply love? Love is love. People will express it very differently. We've gone to uh, China, and we've we've put people in brain scanners, uh, lead author Mona Mona Zhu, and um, it's exactly the same brain. This is a brain system like the fear system or the anger system. These evolved millions of years ago. It doesn't matter if you're from China uh, or or South Africa or um, Alaska. It's a, it's the same brain systems. And all you have to do is look at world poetry. It's, they say the same things all over the world. You know, send me an email. <laughs> Write, call, tell me that you love me. I love that. Love is just simply love. And I, I throw out there that love is really a verb, you know? Oh, that's that a is, wonderful way to think of it. It is a verb. You bet it's a verb. Yeah, it's, it's, in, it's, in, the, it's in the doing, it's in the being, it's in the action. And it does require attention. You know, like in order to get the love that we believe that we want, we need, we're entitled to, we desire, it does require a little focus. And if we focus our attention in that direction, there we will find ourselves. And uh, you asked about the future. I'm very optimistic about the future because I think more and more singles are really realizing that. In this Singles in America study with Match.com, we asked them, most over, over 80% think that they can make a long-term relationship that lasts forever. And I think they've finally come to realize that this does take work. When you ask them what they're looking for, they want somebody who respects them, somebody who they can confide in, somebody they can trust, but also somebody who spends time with them and somebody who makes them laugh. They're, we are turning inward. We used to marry to please God or or extended family or the community. Now we're making relationships to please ourselves. We're taking a long time to make them. I call it slow love. 
Uh, we want to get to know the person very well before we tie the knot. But when we do, we're working harder on our relationships than we have at any time in human in human history. And we're seeing more happy marriages on, on Match.com. I mean, with Match.com, we ask married people, not on Match.com, of course. We ask um, a thousand married people, would you remarry the person you're currently married to? And 81% said yes. And I think that's because these days... Bad marriages can end because women are economically more powerful. They don't have to get stuck in a bad marriage. Same with men. Uh, we're free to leave a bad marriage to make a better one. And I think that a great many people are really dedicated to <clears throat> excuse me, to doing that. In fact, I would say that if there was ever a time in human history when we have the opportunity to make really good relationships, that time is now. Dr. Helen Fisher, thank you for sharing with us a very positive outlook on the state of love around the world. To learn more about Dr. Helen Fisher, please visit HelenFisher.com on Facebook, Helen Fisher, PhD, with a hyphen between the words. And on Twitter, she is at Dr. Helen Fisher. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my amazing guest today, Dr. Helen Fisher and Linda Carroll, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. And thanks to our producers who make us shine each and every week. We appreciate you. Here come those tunes. Go out and make it a great day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us every Wednesday morning live at 10 to 11 Central Time here on Toginet Radio. Then harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with free downloadable podcasts available at iTunes. To learn more about Lisa's filmography, felicitation, and philanthropy, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Each week... Harvesting Happiness presents engaging trendsetters, exploring our world through science, art, medicine, media, music, philosophy, politics, and the human heart, whose perspectives on life are sure to inspire, provoke, and engage. Lisa's diverse guests are a proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Like Lisa says, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following us on Twitter at hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Then join us again next week at this same time on the Toginet Radio Network.